0: HD Smartcast. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD
1: Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor, Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi. So today we have with us Meena Arora Naik who's uh, written Adbhut, Marvelous Creatures of Indian Myth and Folklore. Hi, Meena. Hello. Hi, Manjula. Good to to meet you and thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, Meena, do you want to tell us how you decided uh, or why you decided to, you know, write this book, which is like, you know, like I was saying, it's, it's such a trigger for the reader to read more and to learn more about the myths and you know, the folklore, the creatures that you've spoken about in your book.
0: Certainly. Um, so um, I think it actually, I'm not quite clear on how I actually started on the book, but I have a feeling that when I was writing, um, an earlier book on myths and folk tales of India, basically about the Blue Lotus. There was a, there were a lot wow. of animal characters that kept appearing in the myths, and I think we started. A, I started a conversation with my editor at that time, saying, "You know, this seems to be like a whole different spinoff." So, mm-hmm. it. I think the the conversation sort of evolved over time, and then we both had a favorite book, which Borges' uh, Imaginary Beings. I think it was written in 1957. We both of us, we, at some point we started discussing that book and then we were considering a children's book related to the characters and then a more adult book and then somehow we settled on this one saying okay you know what we're going to do do a book on imaginary characters and then of course it wasn't just imaginary but it it had to do with making myth and folktale because first of all that's my expertise and then also there was just so much material in the myths and folktales that we had we had already uh written about
1: Hmm. So I was wondering, you know, you you've uh, got creatures from Hindu myth, from Buddhist you know, myth, from uh, Islamic and uh, Christian uh, traditions, you know, and and Sikh as well. So it's it's really wide. So tell me about, you know, a, lo- a lot of a lot of writers concentrate on just a single tradition, you know. So let's talk about that. <laughs> Thank you. Actually, in my head, that's actually
0: one of the most important questions. Um, First of all, these are Indian traditions and india is not just one tradition so and the uh, to, to just focus on one tradition is negating other other traditions or not taking into account and another reason is that they're all so interrelated no culture yeah. is an island it does not develop on its own everything in a country such as india my goodness everything gets interrelated and so, yes. you know, take, take the bull, for example. I mean, not, it doesn't just interrelated in the cultures in India. It's related, it's internationally connected. Oh, so many cultures across the world. The phoenix is another one, which of course is, is similar to the simurgh in Islamic uh, tradition. And so they were just these creatures or any, any myth and folktale is interrelated as a result of how culture evolves. And so there was no question in my mind that the book had to be about as many traditions as we could possibly cover and so of course of Mm. course it had to happen
1: Mm. and and, and what was interesting is how you weave I mean you make the reader see the connections also you know without really banging us on the head with it I guess
0: (laughs) yes thank you thank you and so yes that was that was intentional and thank you for thank you for mentioning that
1: uh, so, you know, um, how long did it take you to do this? Did you just, you know, because you've been working in this area, so you already knew what would be put down or...? Busy <laughs> <process>. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> it's always, you know, it's always interesting to talk about how certain books take a little bit longer than other books. So actually, when I first started, it, we, we did have a sort of a list of characters, as I mentioned, because, you know, the inspiration was Blue Lotus. So we had mm-hmm. some characters that we had actually taken from those m- myth who, who we felt deserved a story of their own. But then mm-hmm. as I started, um, as I started making the list a little bit wider, I realized that I it may require more work mostly because of the research because many of these characters are not so easily available in you know you can't just simply pick up a book and say hey let me find out about Shamir the worm yes. or etc so I knew that the research would would go a little bit deeper than I expected and then um, And I think I mentioned this in in my author's note also, the the pandemic hit, And fortunately for me, oh, you know, it's horrible to even say, but fortunately for me, I wasn't going to work. So I I had more time than I had expected. And so I could research actually. As a result of that, the list changed for me. So I would say that it took me about so we we started the I'd say about two years. So one year to sort of figure out what I wanted to do, and then another year to research all of it, and then of course a few a, a few months to I, as I as I was researching, I was already writing. So I'd say about two and a half total, two and a half years mm. total.
1: Mm. And you know what was surprising to me is when I was reading it, I realized that you know while one is uh, as an Indian, you're really quite familiar with uh, you know Buddhist myths and with um, Hindu myth. You're not really that familiar with Sikh uh, you know iconography or uh, uh, you know. So uh, that that was quite a revelation, and of course also Islamic, though 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 the Sufi stream is very familiar, but the uh, the the myths are not that you know. So th- that was fresh material. So you want to talk about that?
0: Yes. All right. I think the first thing that we need to clear up is that myth is, you know, in in, in most, un, in, we comprehend myth as, let's say, fictitious or something that is, you know, a made up story to explain something or mm. a, as, quote, as quote, unquote, as a moral teaching. It really is not. A myth is actually amoral. It doesn't talk about mm-hmm. morals. Morals, actually, it, it relates to us. And so we impose on it the morals that we grow up with basically so myth is very very personalized so that's and mm. and it's not fictitious it's actually yes. truer than maybe real life because it, yes. it talks about an internal a, a deep reality which is like i said truer than truth therefore yes. um therefore you know um Um, Let's say um, faiths such as Islam or Sikhism, where we don't expect a lot of myths. Actually, all of all of quote unquote religion is is mythology based because it's all Mm -hmm. based on these these lovely learnings that are about the truth of life. So nothing is actually removed from myth. Therefore, yes, they were a little bit harder to research, to actually, you know, to see if we can, what can be, what stories can be taken out of them. So rather than just myth, what's what stories, relatable stories can be taken out of them. But believe me that there, there are plenty. And Chittabas has always been in Sikhism. Chittabas has always been one of my favorite. I've always wondered about, especially the image of Guru Gobind Singh Ji. So you know, yes. it, it was another thing. And then the the Islam's uh, she camel. Wow, what a story! You know yeah. that of, of the of the calf crying three times and the and the and and uh, and, 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 and it being taken into account. So uh, yes, of course, and and it was intentional as well that I needed to make sure that Sikhism and Islam were covered.
1: Hmm. And also the story of Burak. I thought that was like quite fascinating. Right, mm-hmm. isn't it? So that's not just yeah. Sufism. Of course,
0: Sufism has elevated it to heights of mythological and creative heights, unimaginable. Basically, the whole description of it in in certain in in, in certain traditions, you know, with the diamond bodies and the gems and etc. It's a wonderful description. So in in the Quran itself, the description is a little is a little bit more. Um, I would say, whittled down in a sense. So it's 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 a different. So yes, the Prophet and it in hadith it Also, so yes, it's 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 mentioned. So it isn't just in the mythology in in Islamic mythology; it's actually part of the Quran itself.
1: Hmm. You you've set some uh, some creatures together, and they sort of families of like their birds and their you know animals and. Yeah, so talk about that classification. The classifications,
0: oh, okay, but certainly. So, um, and, and that was something I struggled with like, how do you put how do you make how do you, you know, classify, like you said, how do you classify this particular book? Yes. I, it could have been just a random list of characters, but really, yes. because these characters are so related to cosmogonies and, and cosmographies, like um the creation of 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 things and life in all traditions it made, it ultimately made sense in my head. Literally like one day, it, it's one one of those things. i like, oh my God, yes, it has to be related to creation stories. So I went back mm-hmm. and read as many creation stories as I, as I could. And I realized that there were classifi- classifications in the creation stories. You know, the birds of the, the, the creatures of the sky were created. And the, actually the first creatures in most traditions created were the creatures of the sea but I really like the story of Simorg. So I, I did a little bit of create, took a little bit of creative, um, license here and, and made that the first section, the, the, the creatures of the air. So, um, that 's where it came from the creation story so when when the when the supreme beings in these traditions created, they created classified beings like creatures of the sea, creatures of the land, creatures of the air, etc et etc cetera, et, cetera, et cetera so that 's where the classification came but then I had these cla- these these creatures that didn 't fall into anything such as the chimeric creatures. And so there were these, so these were the ones that I required a classification of their own. They were just amalgams. We told me, thought hmm. about chimera, but I really, chimera is such a non-Indian term. It's more of a Western, yes. it has a Western connotation to it. So then yes. you decide, I like the word amalgam. It literally gives a sense of putting something together in a, in a box and maybe just shaking it. So it's like a mixture hmm. of things because most of these chimeric creatures are really a mixture of many, many creatures, which in itself, of course, is symbolic. And so the and hence the classifications. So um, the five sections, as you know, um, creatures of the of the air, creatures of 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 the sea, creatures of land, and the creatures that exist in between, such as snakes and dragons, etc. Insects. Where do you put them? You know, they they snakes are, are creatures that exist on land, sea, and and burrow in the ground as well. And so those are the creatures in between, and then of course creatures of amalgam.
1: Okay. Okay. So you know, while I was reading it, and and this the, the Simurgh story actually reminded me of one of Salman Rushdie's early um, early novels. You know, one the only sci-fi novel he's written called uh, Grimace, I think, and which was which is um, uh, which is based on the Simurgh uh, uh, myth. And then I was also thinking about the Marvel uh, mythology, and you know, and how we are constantly recreating and creating myths so do you want to talk about that certainly so and what is it that makes us do this as humans you know we're oh, constantly okay. Doing yes it. i create a story so i mean this is
0: very clearly from a sufi tradition and um um there was a there was there was um a, a, a persian writer fariduddin Natar, conference of birds yes. he wrote it's a Yes. Wonderful long Sufi text about these birds that go that that want to find out about the soul, basically, or you know the mm-hmm. self. What is the self and what it is that 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 that, that wants transcendence from this monotonous world, basically, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. um, and so these birds get together and they decide to go find their king. Which of course is the smorg. At the end of it, only thirty. But so it's literally it's a it's a it's a, it's a text. It's a novel. It reads. It's a it's a lyrical novel that that reads about this journey that the birds take, um, hmm. and to find the Simorgue. And each bird then relates his whole his own story. And then the various um, b- obstacles that they face and, and the obstacles that basically symbolically the soul faces in in reaching the, that identity with self. And so 30 birds at the end finally reach the Simurgh. And the Simurgh is like a mirror where they see themselves and they don't understand why they can't see the king, but they see themselves. And the Simurgh, yes. Simurgh says, that's what it is. That's the reality, and so it's ultimately a, a text about transcendence and realization of the self. So it's a long, beautiful lyrical text. Like I said, this is just a, a portion of it. It's it's a very hmm. very small excerpt of it. So um, hmm. once again, it's the Conference of Birds. It's called one of my favorite favorite books, absolutely. But um, but the Shahnameh, the, the the Persian Book of Book of Kings, also mentions himorg. And actually gives mm-hmm. it a different description, which I think I've included in the story. So then, you know, the tradition was picked up. So it was this was it, it was a Sufi tradition that was picked up by many writers.
1: Okay. Uh, what I was saying is that you know we are constantly myth making, right? I mean, even uh, the the whole success of all these uh, uh, you know Marvel comics and uh, and even things like uh, you know I was speaking to my son and you know uh, all these young people are so into uh, into these cinematic versions of it and even Japanese things like you know Pokemon. It's all basically myth making, right? So what is it that's why is it so essential to us as as a people, uh, you know, humans. Ah, storytelling, of
0: course. My goodness, we are creatures of stories. We dream yes. at night. We dream in stories. So even yes. if the dream is broken up, I mean, if that's what our subconscious is doing, can you imagine what we, of course, it's all. That's why, I mean, children, you mentioned your son, which of course is so interesting because so many of the role-playing games that kids play today, they pick a character and they tell a story. So the character the is yes. built up based on a story. And so, um, yes. you know, we, like I said, we are creatures of stories. So anything that's symbolic symbolic in our life or that means something in our life, the best way to understand it or the best way to express it is through a story. So we are constantly creating stories in our mind, which, of course, the ancient myth makers were doing, which storytellers right through the, through the years, through millennia have been doing. Hence, the most natural expression that we have is a story. That's what we tell our children when they're growing up, right? We tell them yes. stories, like all the Chanda Mama stories and the cute, you know, all of those lovely things, the rabbit in the moon and all these are lovely yes. stories that we... So
1: children grow up on this, of course. Yes. Yes. you know, And this story about uh, Byangoma and Byangomi and Rabindranath Tagore's introduction, you know, uh, which uh, says i thought there was so much so much nostalgia in it and even this nostalgia is like for a time when grandmothers were telling stories and i was thinking that nostalgia for this you know time still continues and this was written in 1907 so you know right i, I mean it's a, isn't it it's a it's a fantastic story and i am
0: I mean, I think that I'm, I'm older. You know, I've got a grandson now, and I totally and I feel like a grandmother. I feel like that grandmother with the grandmother with a with a sack full of stories. <laughs> I, my my daughter grew up on these, so my, my daughter's bedtime stories used to be myths because my, that's like I said, you know, I grew up on myths. My parents <laughs> told me myths when I was growing up, so my bedtime stories used to be myths. Um, it was only later, even though they're you know they're they're quite conservative Hindus, but really the myths that I grew up with were stories to me. I didn't learn the food mm. unquote religious context till much later in life. And my daughter grew up on myths as stories as well. And so the grandmother's Julie... Um is still is still very much a part of every child's life because I think we we, we still tell our children bedtime stories, whether they are from our culture or another culture or you know stories we we ourselves grew up in. And so yes. Yungamo and Bengami are one of the most uh, uh, till today. I mean, my husband's Bengali. and so till today those are very popular um, characters in Beng- in Bengali traditions. And so those mm-hmm. stories are still told. And I'm so happy to know that such cultures are still alive across India. And, and Bengal is only one example. I know in Punjab, yes. my God, I'm from Punjab. It's rich with, with stories such as this. When I was writing The Blue Lotus, I um, turned to my mother to tell me some of the stories that I I remembered, but only vaguely because, you know, I used to hear them when I was when I was younger. And she, my God, she she's much older. She's in her 90s now. But the stories that she came up with, it it made me it made me so it made my heart grow bigger to know there was such (laughs) a rich tradition of storytelling and you know, so my my books are sort of a way of carrying on that tradition.
1: I want to say, mm-hmm. and, and I and I like even this the the dog that guards the judgment bridge, the Parsi stories. You know, I thought that was like really fresh because i I know we know Parsis, but uh, I, I mean, you no, know, the Parsi myth hasn't really been explored that much, I think, no, except yeah. by Parsis themselves, maybe you know.
0: You're absolutely right. It hasn't. And also um, Zoroastrianism, of course, as you know, as as it happens with all other faiths and traditions in India, everything has become so mixed up with everything else that, you know, we can't yes. actually, unless you're doing some solid research, you can't actually identify um, this is this tradition and this is. But in certain aspects, such as the dog, be, because Parsis yeah. have such a fantastic last rites tradition. You know, with their, what yes. they do with their dead. Therefore, and yes. and actually, that's a very, very that's a very important aspect of how we live our lives. Actually, the most important aspect of our lives. Think about it. The most important aspect of our life is actually death, because we don't yes. know anything about it, right? Therefore, yes. a lot of a lot of stories and traditions and rights are attached to not just. Not just to to in Zoroastrianism or, or Pars in the lives of Parsis, but across the across the across the board attached to death stories, and yes. so of course, and that it's isn't it, and to know that a common dog could actually be the guardian of your dead body—I mean, that's crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah, that also made me think of Yudhishthira's dog. You know, a company. Uh, you know, who accompanied him to, uh, uh to, you know, on his, ju- on his last journey. So that kind of, I made that connection also while I was reading this, you know. Beautiful. Was that collection. in your head? beautiful connective, because that's
0: dharma right yudhishthira dog is yes. dharma at the end yes. it's real, it's dharma. and you know what when i used to hear that story as a as a young person and my mother would tell me how the dog was dharma and knew right and wrong and all of that and then in at, at, in, at a later point in life i also learned that the dog is actually considered in the caste system of india the dog is actually low, on the on one of the lowest rungs of the caste system and that yes, is yes. It's actually untouchable that if you touch a dog like my mother like i said my mother's very conservative and so if i touched a dog i would have had to come and wash my hands of course the germs and all aside but only because <laughs> of that but do you understand yes. so that the idea that the not just the not just the dharma and of course in 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 the lives of parsis the dog is dharma and dog is what's going to lead you but the fact that the caste system is thrown asunder you know yes something so lowly could have such transcendence yes
1: yes yeah, so so the, I guess myths make us—I yeah, I don't know—transcend our, um, our social constraints. I guess in some way. Yes, very
0: well said. Thank you so much for saying it. It they totally do. They literally, they're the bridge that help us connect. That's what I think. I'm a mythologist. So I'm, you know, I keep touting the horn of mythology all the time, but, (laughs) (laughs) but I, I truly believe that they help us bridge, not just, you know, communities, but costs and, and traditions and, and and, and and literature and everything. There's just so much depth in them. So yes, thank you for Mm -hmm. saying that.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I also found this uh the angami myth fascinating this tech i don't know how whether this Techno, is the yes answer. oh my goodness yeah. yes
0: yes 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 oh wow we are, let's talk about
1: that it's such a wonderful one
0: it's also you know? oh, i was so when i read um the eskimo, eskimo tradition or the beliefs that you know um, that the soul can transfer like man and human man and animal were, were, were shared a soul basically that you could transfer into one or the other. It made a lot of sense because it's actually I think a very thonic tradition that you know it's related to the world and below the world and spirits that exist. In between, right? And so, oh, yeah. so this, this, this so nebulous world, in a sense, so to speak, you know, that in our reality is not really quite real, but it's like somewhere out there. But actually, if you look back at ancient t- t- traditions, especially of totemism, for example, um, yes. you, you know, it is, it is actually, it makes sense that. We share so much with the, with the animal world, so to speak, the creature world, especially when everything was created at the same time, right? If everything was created mm-hmm. at the same time, then why wouldn't we share this, 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 have this connection and share a soul or be able to transfer from one body to another? So that's what the belief is, right? That tigers right. and, and, and men share, are able to transfer because they are brothers of the same mother, so, so to speak. They only, yes, yes. that's really what the belief is, which we could, so that's tigers, but it could be any animal I'm, we, you know, that we feel affinity to why, why, why not? I remember when I was a child, we used to play a game. If you were an animal, what animal would you be? Did you ever play that, Mandela? Uh no <laughs> <laughs> we used to have that at birthdays and all okay you know like okay which if you were an, or oh, if you were a flower what flower would would you be etc so which, which animal would you be and then we would think I remember thinking okay at various times I was a camel because I really liked the idea of not having to you know like drinking for seven days and crossing the desert <laughs> you know, it was such a crazy animal and so zebra was another interesting one but you see so trying to put your own self within the mold of an animal was so interesting, but I think that sort of connects to it um that it it is it, it's an ancient belief which actually people did believe um before we started seeing before technological advancements and where we started separating um animal from man so this it's a it's a very ancient belief comes from there that man and and an animal can especially tigers. And the most interesting, I think the most, in, I won't give away the story, but the most interesting mm-hmm. part of it is the end where, how do you tell if a man's soul has entered a tiger's body? Manjula, do you remember from the story how you can tell if a man's soul? Right.
1: Is,
0: yeah. So, yep, that's, I mean, that's my, that's the most fascinating. So imagine looking for that paw print saying, oh, my God. And if, and if one were to find a paw print such as this.
1: Yes, yes. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, actually, the, the, the tribal uh, mythology seemed, I mean, maybe it's just because it, it, it's kind of removed from, um, one's own mythology that one's grown up with it seems even more interesting you know and uh, I kind of wish there were mo- there was more of it because it's like so original and uh, uh- different and we haven't heard much of it which
0: itself yes, it's a tragedy well, in my mind we need to yes. hear more about these ancient these these tribal mythologies which are so rich many of them yes. of course have been have 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 borrowed or i should say have been taken over sometimes by the larger pan-indian traditions of you know the larger 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 traditions of, of indian mythology but yes. in themselves um they are s- terribly rich like um for example the other one do you remember the 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 python so that yes that yes, so yes. that all that shows evidence how how there's been an intermingling of of the pan indian and 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 tribal etc so of the that's of the Choti and the mithai uh, tribes. Yes, and so yeah. these, so you're absolutely right. They're very rich traditions. My favorite one is the caterpillar, though the caterpillar, which yes, that's a really good one. It, it reminded me of Red Riding Hood. <laughs> it looks a bit
1: tragic. It is, yeah, right? yeah. And,
0: a, and a little <laughs> scary. Like beware, yeah. the tiniest of creatures could pose some danger. Right, a caterpillar. Yes. I'm saying. So yes, you know, these are so these are of course warning stories and teaching a lesson stories and. And keeping a tradition, stories they have many of the tribal myth, myths and folk tales actually are animal related, which tells you exactly that stories about animals were created perhaps before any other stories were created. I mean, we know from mm-hmm. our own Vishnu avatars that the first yes. three avatars were animal, animal avatars. So obviously, yes. animal traditions were more alive in the ancient world, or or more more prevalent in the ancient world stories of anthropomorphic um uh, you know man like characters happened later
1: yes uh, uh, and, and this I found this also very, uh, you know, it is a common notion among Hindus, Buddhists and Sikhs that the world consists of 84 million species, which include all animal and human forms and a soul suffers through all of these before reaching liberation. For this reason, most religious systems in India attribute moral agency to birds and animals. Oh, that, that that's like really good. And then you go on about in the theistic systems of Judaism. Christianity and Islam, animals are not equivalent to a representative of the human experience. God gives man rule over the fish. In the sea, the birds of heaven and every living creature that moves upon the earth. That's from Genesis. So, you know, the I like how you've like juxtaposed these two. And it kind of, I don't know, it opens your mind to uh, to... to, to Perhaps different ways of thinking about the same thing.
0: Right. So So let's talk about that. Absolutely. So the revealed religions, of course, it's because and and so in the in the history of times, let's say. Um, fates that happened later did. So once, so let's say once man came into his own, once animals were left behind or animals were seen only as animals, once the animal mythologies and stories were left behind and man came into his own, it, and, and started gaining, um, became empowered. Um, you mm. know, so animals then, um, were seen as less quote unquote, I don't want to, I hate to use this word, but lesser creatures or creatures that man could control. Hence, of course, yeah. and, and that then right there is the severance. That's how mm-hmm. the I think man and animal point are kind of severed in the mind, in, in let's say, mythological terms, that animals mm-hmm. became animals and men became men. And I mean, it, it's the same goes with, let's say, like once and once again, with reference to Vishnu's avatars that, you know, a, eventually and then we have the Narasimha, which is his which is his um fourth fourth of tar where he's man lion and then yes. and then he becomes woman, which is a dwarf man and then yes. ultimately he comes into his his manly being power and so yes. it's almost it almost uh, reflects the traditions of revealed religions such as islam and christianity etc etc that when maya man came into his own animals became lesser and hence man gained control over them so myths say myth doesn't create man man creates myths so whatever we were seeing yes. in our own reality is what we told in stories hence mm-hmm. the mythologies of all religions or faiths actually come from what man was seeing in himself and around
1: him yes hmm. So which is your personal favorite? I mean, I know you can't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> personal favorite. Um, one of my favorites, I think, is a very, in- and I that's, I had I'd heard about it. I didn't know enough about, about it. The Shamir, the worm. Do you remember that yes. one? Yes. From Judaism? Yes,
1: yes. That was very interesting.
0: Isn't it? I've never heard it before. I, had, hmm. I had, had, had like I said, I'd heard about it, but I'd never, like, I'd never actually done research on it. And so that mm. was um, so. It's um, um. I mean, I'll I'll tell a little bit of the story. So it's a worm that King Solomon used to cut the stones when he created his temple in Jerusalem. Um, and mm. the reason for it is, of course, one of my favorite reasons is because he didn't want to use any tools that 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 um, create violence, such as iron, yes. such as metal. So he used the worm. Yes. So it's the it's the gaze of the worm. It's so sharp that it can cut. Even diamond, and so mm. um, and so he uses that, and then it's lost. Then the worm is lost after that, right? And we yes. don't know where it went. And then he he ultimately finds the, finds the worm, and then it disappears again. And now nobody knows. And disappears in a particular year, and then nobody knows. Now nobody knows where it is. So it's that tiny. It's the worm is less than a centimeter. Can you imagine that? That tiny. <laughs> And it has yeah. a gaze so sharp that it can cut stones to build a temple. I love yes. that idea. Something this minuscule and something as massive as a temple to, dedicated to God. Wow. Yes. I mean, yeah. it's literally that. It's that juxtaposition, right? Yeah. And of course, the you know, to to make sure that we don't use anything related to violence to build a temple. Yes. And so, yes, it's a, I, I mean, I get, it's a short, it's a short piece. Do you have time if I read a portion of it? Yeah, yeah. Please read, please read. That'd be okay. fantastic. Let me hold, hang on just a second. Let me find a page. Shamir, no. Shamir. Okay. Oh yeah, there it is. One is. Let's do it. It's, it. it's I think when I did the research and I realized how powerful it was, I had to include it. Okay. Shamir, the stone cutting worm. Shamir is a worm the size of a grain of barley. Its gaze is so sharp that it can cut through stone, iron, and diamond. When King Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem, he used a Shamir to cut the stones. Because it was a temple of peace, he did not want to use any tools that engender violence. The Shamir has existed from the time of Moses. It was one of the ten wonders created by Yahweh on the eve of the first Sabbath. Moses himself used this worm to engrave the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on the breastplate of the first priest. But after that, the shemir disappeared, and no one knew where it was. Some said it was hidden in, in paradise, and only Asmodeus, who is the king of earthly spirits and the prince of demons, knew where it was. Because Solomon needed the Shamir for his temple, he brought Asmodeus under his control and made him reveal the worm's whereabouts. He discovered that it had been entrusted to the angel of the sea and that angel had entrusted it to the moorhen. Hence Solomon sent his aides to search for the Shemir in the marshes where the moorhen lives. They found it, caught it with cunning and brought it to Solomon. After Solomon used the Shemir to build his temple in Jerusalem, he wrapped it up in wool and stored it in a container made of lead its gaze so sharp and fiery that any other container would have burst and disintegrated. In the Holy Quran, so here's the cross-culture then. In the Holy yes. Quran, the Shamir is called the worm of the earth. It is mentioned in the story of Prophet Suleiman's death. The Prophet was an overseer of incarcerated jinns who were building the temple. When he died, he was standing in the temple site holding his staff. He remained leaning against the staff for almost a year. The whole time the jinns continued to toil, thinking that the prophet was still alive. When a worm worm of the earth gnawed through the staff till it broke and Suleiman's body fell to the ground, that is when the jinns realized that their warden was dead and they were free to escape. (laughs) And then, of course, the last line. When Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Solomon's temple, the Shamir disappeared from earth. The year was 586 BCE.
1: Mm. And so mm. see,
0: it covers the sea, it covers heavens, it covers the earth. It's basically, it's a, I call this a, a full a holistic myth. It has everything. It has the juxtapositions. Yes. It covers all three levels of the world. It covers the jinns. It's got the godly element. It's got temples. It's got everything basically that a story needs to have.
1: And it's got the comic element also with these jinns toiling away thinking. <laughs> <in the life. laughs> I didn't even see
0: that. Thank you. It does have a comic element. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. And, and also, you know, I thought, you know, this thing about the parrots and the, Mongo- the mongoose, you know, these are, I don't know, these are creatures we see, uh, you know, around us as Indians. But uh, your, you know, putting it in this book made me think about them more in context of mythology and folklore. And, you know, how parrots. And I didn't know the story about the mongoose and, you know, about uh, uh, the golden mongoose that spits jewels. So that's... A, yeah,
0: it's, a, it's actually a very powerful story. And it, it's actually in the Mahabharata. So the Mahabharata actually ends with it, which is very interesting because, you see, the Mahabharata is a battle. It's a battle text, basically. It's a war text, yes. right? It's, it's yes. in fact, I remember my mother telling telling us that, you know, the the Rama, having the Ramayana in the house was auspicious. Having the Mahabharata yes. in the house was inauspicious. Yes, simply yes. because it's a war text, and it encourages conflict because it's a conflict between cousins and families, and you know all of that. Therefore, yes. but telling the stories of the Mahabharat was 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 important for the spirit. She would say, hence the golden mongoose to end the Mahabharata, which I think in my head is actually the the tellers of the Mahabharat were supreme storytellers. They write a whole war text, but how do they end it? They end it with the with the story of peace and sacrifice, because the Mongols, the Golden Mongols, is all about sacrifice. He goes to you. This the the story is basically this that. When he goes to Yudhishthira's Ashamed Yagi at the end, when he wins the war and he's going to take over the throne of Astinapur. And so everybody's, you know, he's using all this wealth and all of that and everybody's being rewarded. They used to have these huge sacrifices at that, you know, at the altar. They would give, give away hundreds and thousands of, you know, vessels of jewels and everything, all of that. And so none of the, no, no ordinary person could actually afford such massive sacrifices. Even the kings used to put their people in debt in order to take money from them to have these sacrifices. So this mongoose, Mm -hmm. so he's enjoying himself and saying, oh my God, look what a ruler I've become. And this tiny little mongoose, who's gold on one side, but gray on the other side, comes into the sacrifice and speaks in a human voice and says, he negates the whole sacrifice. He says, what are you um, feeling victorious about? Your sacrifice is, is, is zeroed out. You, you don't have mm. the necessary elements of a true sacrifice. And then he tells a story of a Brahmin who gives away, and his family, who give away the lost literally the last grains of their meal to him even though they are fasting when he when 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 he went, when he goes to visit them as a guest they basically mm-hmm. sacrifice themselves and his body at that time turns turns half his body turns golden and he's now looking for another sacrifice to turn the other side of his body golden but he cannot find that sacrifice and he had come to yudhishthira's sacrifice hoping that this one because yudhishthira is the dharma king that his sacrifice yes. would turn his body golden but it's nothing it's it's the same strain of you, of using wealth and 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 and, and feeling victorious uh, about being rich and so he goes away saying i denounce the sacrifice completely the mahabharata which is a war text and it's all about wealth and it's all about fighting for wealth ends with this story this is my in my eye in my head a way of the storytellers of the Mahabharata to say that war is all well and good and wealth is, yes, it's necessary for life, but really nonviolence and, and sacrifice is what life is all about. So, yes, mm. you can have this massive war, but that's not life.
1: Yeah, that's that's a wonderful, wonderful lesson. Exactly, such a tiny little story, but boy, what! And
0: to end the text, end this big, huge text with this tiny little story, I think that's so powerful. And so, you know, hats off to these uh, story our ancient storytellers.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the golden mongoose, and you know, also this horse is also quite fascinating. Um, The horse in the Vedas or the 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 Ucheshwar is the first horse that came yes, out of the, the, the seven-headed. yes so, right yes. oh you know, my
0: goodness yes absolutely so beautiful and the tales that are, so my so my um i think um the favorite my favorite part of 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 the horse of the of the first horse is basically the connection with the snakes yes and the you know and the whole because this so the snake story um, you know, stop me whenever you need to, Manjula, like, because I I love telling these stories. No, <laughs> no, you can go on. You can go on. I'm very interested. I'm sure the listeners will be too. So, no okay. So the snake stories actually run right because the Mahabharata starts with with the snake story. It starts with the snake sacrifice, and all the snakes are sacrificed. And so the snake story runs throughout as a sort of a frame story, but it's a very elusive frame story. Right through the text about the snake sac, the snakes are sacrificed because they are very powerful, and because it, there's a whole different. I won't go into that. And so, the
1: mother cursed them also, which and I that's shocking. exactly
0: that's where the that's where the horse comes in, right? That the horse yeah. to see whether the horse is white, the horse is black, and the two yes. sisters have a they 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 they, they lay a bet. Think one says black and one says white, and then one of the mother the snake mother makes her sons um, wind themselves and braid themselves in the tail of the horse, so the horse appears black, and she wins the bet as a result of that. And mm-hmm. so, in creation stories, this is actually a um, so the in creation stories the goddess was the creator actually, and many creation stories, not the god, but the goddess, yes. the creatrix, so to speak. And so mm. this creatrix then creates this element of a lie at the very beginning, and mm. changes the whole nature of things in those five hundred years that the curse has to last, which could go, which could, which we could actually see as an earlier time before the Aryans, let's say, it's if, if you are t- yes. talking about, um, you know, about the Aryan theory. So before the mm. Aryans' advent and before the early inhabitants, the indigenous people. So that yes. time and when they were deceived and the Aryan culture took over. So the Vedas that we yeah. know of, of course, part of the Aryan culture, which if we, if you, you know, this goes into a whole different element of history and Aryan theories and, and politics, we, I won't go into that. But
1: basically, <laughs> <laughs> It's too much, it's
0: too much. It's too, much. <laughs> and too early in the morning for me <laughs> to go into the politics of that. But really that's, yeah. so the horse is very important in my head. Related to the snake story, which uh, which I think is a more important story. The horse itself, mm-hmm. of course, is important because horse is such an important element of Indian culture, anyway. Yes, yes. Uh, I don't want to say Aryan culture, but yes, very much a very important. Seven headed horse, absolutely. But in my, for me, the snake story is it actually becomes has more importance.
1: Hmm. And the snake itself has so many. I mean, different cultures. Look at it in different ways at different points, right? Yes.
0: Yeah, like, my goodness, across the cultures. Oh my God, the serpent of Eden. Wow. And look yeah. what, I mean, how much that has changed. That that basically, I think, has changed. Ev- no, I don't want to say defined. Defined everybody's um, characterization of male and female. Yes, right? yes. And so, yeah I'll, yeah, I'll tell you a little, uh, one of my favorite bumper stickers. And I, I, I can't, in India, do we have bumper stickers? I can't remember. In America, they're like bumper stickers. I you think people will put all kinds of stuff on their bumpers, the bumpers of their cars <laughs> to sort of express their views. So one bumper mm-hmm. sticker I still remember, that my favorite of all time, is um, was Eve was framed you know the whole adam and eve story yeah, right Yeah, that yeah, eve yeah. gives adam an apple and then eve is the one who brings down man she's considered the reason for the fall of man and so the book yes. says that eve was framed of course she was framed by the serpent <laughs> and so you know, the whole garden of eden story and of course in indian traditions but it's such a dualistic or i want to say actually polygonal almost symbol mm. because the snake i think is the is a is a metaphor that is probably the richest of all.
1: Hmm.
0: It, it hmm. has so many connotations and denotations. In in, yes. in 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 Indian tradition too, I mean, you know, we see snakes as, I think actually this is one culture where we do not see snake as evil, but we do see yeah, the I darkness. Don't. We don't see it as evil. Yes. We see it as darkness. Yes. And as light as well. I mean, you know, mm. there's, um, I mean, look, look, we actually have a festival celebrating snakes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, yes. Okay. It's, um, and there are snake shrines and stuff. like. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And yeah, and all the, and the punch and oh my God, there's like a huge, there's a whole different tradition that's related to the snakes. And yes. so, yeah, this is, and hence, and of course, hence we go back to the snake stories, probably belonging to a, 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 people before maybe the audience because these are yes. such tonic stories. Absolutely. And so um I think one of the most we what we know of most are of course the snake that helped with the Smudramanthan. The you know yes. and so um and Vastu Shastra. So Vasuki is, is one we know Vasuki. and we know yes. Sheshnag, Of course we everybody loves Sheshnag because you know yes. we're still sleeping on Sheshnag. And yeah. so and then but I um um Yes, absolutely. I love... Snake stories are actually of some of my favorite ones in this book and in any any other book I may write. I love snake stories.
1: Hmm. Right. So, you know, uh, we could go on discussing this because myth and folklore, it's such a huge... I mean, it's such a... It's, it's an ocean. Uh, it's like a boundless ocean, really. And I guess new generations also create new myth. I mean, I don't know. That's probably... Oh, absolutely. I hope so.
0: Yes. Why? Absolutely. (laughs) Myth is, is myth is not always living. It's, it's always created and recreated. They may not create new stories of their own, but they will definitely change or put in their own or their own take or perspective on the myths that we have.
1: Yes. Yes. So, so it's, it's, it's ever regenerative, I suppose. Yes. Well said. (laughs) So, but um, on on that note, we'll end for for the listeners. Go out and get Adbuth by uh, marvelous creatures of Indian myth and folklore by Meena Arora Naik. It's it's a lovely book, and I have to say it's got lovely illustrations as well. Uh, you know, uh, besides the stories, but the stories themselves are, are, are fascinating, and you know, the uh, it makes you as makes the reader think about many other things, and it kind of makes you. Uh, connect a lot of uh, things that you, you know, myths that you've heard about as a child and as an adult. And it's really makes you understand how central it is to being human, right? So thank you so much, Meena, for coming on the show.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me, Manjula. I really enjoyed the talking about (laughs) Adbhut. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.